Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland, and together, alongside my nursing students, I bring together my friends and colleagues in an effort to answer the questions, provide mentorship, and oftentimes help other professional nurses along the way. Hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. We are on episode 11. I am joined with my friend and colleague, Alexis Cola, who is, I think, our first recent grad of nursing school that has taken a full-time job. So she graduated in uh, May of 2019 and then took her first job in October 2019. And so we're going to get to talk to her because she works a very interesting job in the OR suite, but also a night shift nurse. So there's lots of stuff that we're going to discuss today. Alexis, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, thank you for having me. You're welcome. What was the driving factor of becoming a nurse? Why did you decide on the program that you did? What was the what was the initial application procedure like things like for you? Um, and why did you decide on nursing? So I think it was when I was like 12 and 13, I started saying I I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be a nurse. And um, I think it was from my experience when I had surgery on my knee when I was a kid. It was nothing serious. And I think after that experience, I just decided that I was going to pursue nursing. And obviously, my, my vision of what nursing was when I was 12 became a lot different when I was in high school, but I still like stayed with it. And I just loved Penn State, so. What was your vision when, when you were 12? I, I have to know this. Well, I mean, it's just, like, how much can you actually understand when you're so young and you're just having, like, a small procedure? Because um, I really hadn't, like, been in the hospital for anything as a kid otherwise, you know? Yeah, I, I, I can kind of um, share that experience. I had a surgery on my finger when I was, like, I think when I was 12 as well, and I had no clue what doctors did. Like, I had a doctor coat growing up, a white lab coat now, you know, but it was it was marketed as, like, the doctor's, you know, uniform when, like, I think when my parents bought it. So it came with, like, a stethoscope, came with a, came with a doctor's lab coat, and I was like, yes, like, voila, I'm going to be this in my life. And I I, I saw myself in the profession as some, somebody that saved somebody. Mm-hmm and helps them but I didn't really realize how in depth that that like mindset went until probably my second degree program of nursing not my first because I did I did do nursing school before I went to nursing school I always tell people that but probably my second degree is when I I guess I saw how in depth th- those things went mm-hmm. so what was that procedure procedure goodness pro- process like or applying to a program like Penn State. That's a giant program. Yeah, so I forget where we started. I think we started with um, maybe like 160 in our class, which is like pretty big for a nursing program, but pretty small for a university with 40,000 undergrads. Um, But I went to um, like a preparatory high school so 
we were all really pushed to look at like universities, like not really community college or uh, I don't know, like like just nursing programs, like where I could go to like a hospital program or something. Um, so, and my siblings, I'm the youngest of four. So all my siblings went to like universities. So that's really where I was going for like a four year university for my bachelor's. Um, and I would say even now I'm learning more about the ways that people get into nursing other than, you know, a four year university with your bachelor's, but it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember I thought the only way to get into nursing was to go to a baccalaureate program yep. when I was growing up before, before I started as, as a quote unquote real nurse, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I talk about this a lot in previous episodes, but when I moved to Pittsburgh, I experienced what a diploma program was and how you could just kind of exist in this hospital and get your diploma as a nurse. And then I realized that there was associate prepared nurses. And I was like, what are all of these programs? And why, why was I exposed to only baccalaureate programs or had the notion that that was the only program that existed or also probably had the bias that the baccalaureate program is the best program to be in, you know, and every other program is, is somehow less, which is not true at all. Right. It's just kind of like how you get involved in nursing. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a very small class size, though comparatively to, to, to Penn State, 40,000 kids, my goodness, I think I'd be lost at a size that big. But other nursing programs, I think are around 100 people, I think. Mm -hmm. So what was, what was, what did you have to do to even apply to their nursing program? Well, I, I would say that the application process was probably like pretty standard, like, like you just apply and like you choose nursing as like your desired um, major, but they were very selective because nursing classes, you know, they kind of need to be small because of clinicals and um, I guess really because of clinicals, <laughs> like clinical availability. So um, I would say that the application process was the same, but it was very competitive to get accepted to a nursing program, period. Not just Penn State, just most university, like four-year bachelor's um, programs. So I would assume that your grades probably had to be pretty high to be competitive for, for this program. Did they make a point to have like you like do like community service work on your application? Was there any kind of like tidbits around that area? I, I know a lot of like, students who want to go to nursing school have those questions if there's like anything extra they should do to apply um I mean because of the school I went to a, a Catholic like private school so they already required community service hours and they required even more than um than like surrounding schools would have like if like if they weren't the, a private like Catholic school so the requirement for the community service in high school, I think really did help because like thinking back, I think that that was something that was kind of like asked on an application. Um, and I also think being like, being like diverse and like being involved in sports and 
being involved in extracurricular activities and um, things like that, I think really also like added to um, the application. That's really cool. I don't, I don't know if, if I had any kind of extra extracurriculars on my application, but I remember when I finally decided to go to a secondary program for my back bachelor's, I want to say that I'm assuming that my prior experience within playing sports, taking classes in like religion and stuff like that probably helped me a little bit as opposed to someone else getting into a program for nursing. I don't know though, because they never told me. They were just like, hey, welcome to the program. Great. Love that. <laughs> so then you started your baccalaureate work at Penn State and you moved, I'm assuming that you guys moved into clinicals your junior year, correct? So the fall of our sophomore year was our first clinical experience and oh. that was just health assessment. Okay. So it was just a lab um, and it was our first, so we had our first nursing course that fall and it was health assessment. And then the lab was doing, at the end of the lab, you knew how to do a full head to toe. Okay. And take blood pressure and things like that. Um, so then the spring of our sophomore year was our first like actual clinical experience. And it was, um, ours was, my clinical site was a nursing home, but I think everyone in my grade, I think our first site was a nursing home. I think that's, I think that's funny because that I think was my first site as well. I'm not even sure why nursing homes are great, but I don't know that they offer the experience of what nursing students need because you're not going in there to assess a patient and listen to them. You're, you're assuming that we move from the clinical experience of assessment to more, I guess, chronic care, it doesn't make sense to, to me anyway, to kind of move into that community home assessment because that kind of is like the place that we should do probably our last clinical experience is that because we just, we learned all of this stuff, we know how to assess lungs, all that stuff. And so you're not going to get the crystal clear picture of like a patient in a long-term care facility, like a nursing home in my mind anyway. So I never really understood that myself, but ours did start out as well in like this nursing home experience. And we kind of just like hung out for like, I think like six hours a day. I think we made like food with them or something and like Play-Doh. I don't even know. I feel like we didn't even do nursing. So we just sat there talk with these people and then we kind of like moved on with our day if I can remember it that correctly well I feel that they kind of put us in that in that position because it it was like I guess when you're in a nursing home you kind of aren't there for something short term like you're not there because you've had this continuous nosebleed or you're not there because, you know, like some, something that just happened today that you're going to do an emergency room, like, and leave. Like, I think it's because these people are the way they are. Like you're not, you're not, hopefully they're not going to stroke on you or something while you're sitting there. Um, so I think that's why they put them in our hands so that, because we just, you know, they should be fairly healthy or like there's just one way to expect these patients. Like, I don't know. I think that it was more so to get us comfortable with being at the bedside 
and um like having some confidence like as like a student nurse like yeah. being able to assess someone because the old people kind of they're just like yeah like you do whatever yeah you want to take my blood pressure five times yeah go ahead like <laughs> you keep listening to my lungs I'm here for it like what else they got to do all day like <laughs> right yeah that's also depressing though when you think about it that way yeah like let's hang out you keep my blood pressure while we talk about things it's gonna be so good oh goodness <laughs> I think they liked the company yeah I think so too I think I think I have a picture of me dancing with some of our some of the residents that I saw who knows if they're even alive still but um but that's probably one of the better times you know is can you kind of like hang out with them um but I don't know that I did much listening to their lungs I don't even remember it was back in 2008 when I did this experience so so then so then your junior year then is when you guys start your more acute care phase but I think not as aggressive as your senior year correct right so i think the fall of our junior year we might have some people were still in nursing homes um for their med search clinical and then some people were in like a rehab hospital i think that's i was at um health south altoona so that was a rehab hospital and then because we had two clinicals that fall, and I'm trying to think. The other one was just a med surge. So, and then the spring was like peds, OB, and I think another med surge. And then senior year, we got into critical care, and you got to do your um, capstone, where you picked like your kind of your specialty, and psych was senior year, and community was senior year, so... Psych is one of those things I, that I never fell in love with. I liked my psych site. We did ours in Delaware at the time. But psych was just not something that I ever wanted to pursue in my professional career. But that's the people that do because, goodness, they are needed thousandfold over, you know, other, other nurses in certain ways because there's such a need for psych places and a need for psych caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um. That's really unique. I, I would love to do something like where we bring like other like students um, from other universities that have graduated and see what their experiences were like in school as well to see if it is the same or see if there's any differences. But yeah. So then you graduated after all that and moved back home and took your first job as an OR nurse. Mm-hmm. What was the experience like with interviewing? and putting your resume out there. What, what are some interview tips you might have for, for new grads as well? Well, so when I graduated, I didn't really have an idea of exactly what kind of nurse I wanted to be. I knew what I didn't want. I knew I didn't want, I knew I wanted acute care, like in a hospital setting. I knew I didn't want something like a long-term care facility as my first nursing job. And I knew, um, I knew I didn't want to do psych. Uh, so, so I knew what I didn't want. So I was kind of open to a lot of things. Um, and like moving back to Philly and applying in Philly after Hahnemann had closed was like really difficult because these hospitals are all trying to like assume the, the deficit of the Hahnemann people. So that kind of 
really stunk for the people that, you know, were my year trying to get out there and get their first job because you, you almost need to like know somebody at some of these like big Philly hospitals. Um, so the application process kind of stunk. Like it took me a long time to actually start hearing from people. Um, so I really wanted to work at Hershey, but I knew that I needed to start at home because of my, um, like my financial situation. Um, so I first heard back, my very first um, phone call was from the, my manager now at St. Mary's in the OR. And I was really shocked to get the call because I kept getting these like default, uh, I'm sorry, but this position has been fulfilled like emails. And that morning I thought, I, I know. And that morning I had thought I got my last one from them, like from that hospital. Like I put in five applications at that hospital on different units and I was just like, okay. So I got a phone call and I, and I was like, oh, okay. And I was, um, I was doing companion care at the time. So I had to step out from my companion and this woman, she's just starts talking on and on about my resume and my application and she would love to interview me. And, and it was just like such a good relief. I was like, okay, I wanted somewhere. <laughs> it's a good start. So, um, it was really exciting to schedule that interview. Um, and I mean, Hershey was, Hershey was very good. Hershey was very on top of it. Like, from the time you submit the application, they sent you something saying we got it. And so Hershey was very good, but the hospitals in Philly, I, I applied to probably at least 50 jobs. And the only one I heard back from was um, CHOP. Um, but I didn't love the idea of working with kids. So I went to this interview at St. Mary's and I was like, I, I prepared with my friends like the week before I talked to them about what they did and um, I took their suggestions of like preparing preparing questions for them like for the people that are interviewing you was huge um, what else having a good pair of interview clothes you don't need a closet full of interview clothes because you're not seeing the same people in every interview. You need one nice pair of pants, one nice pair of flats, and like one or two blouses. Um, and I felt overprepared for this interview, which you should, you should go through some interview questions online. Like there's some standard ones you can read over and kind of get an idea of how you would answer. Um, I got there early because you don't know what the parking situation is like. That's huge. That too. is really huge. That can, that can take up to like 20 minutes of your time if you're not careful. Well, I mean, it also like calmed my nerves, like being there early, like yeah. looking at my watch and being like, I have 20 minutes to find where I'm meeting her and sit down and like get comfortable here. And yeah. Like get and, not, and not feel rushed and not go to be sweaty. Yeah. That would just not be fun. I mean, you're sweaty anyway, but. Right. You're like, your palms are sweaty. You're like, I am so nervous for this. 
And if you're not late, it's like, okay, I'm, I, I'm in control of the situation. That, that's what it's all about. Is how do I have control of an uncontrollable situation, like interviewing? Well, I would even say that the, so I was interviewing on a Tuesday. So the two, the week before on Tuesday, I left my house as if I was going to the interview. That's smart. To see about what traffic would be like, how long it would take me to get there, what the parking situation was like. So I knew that in advance. That is probably one of the best tips, I think, aside from your other tips, because I don't think anyone's talked about the interview process for hospitals, but that's a really good tip for people to know is if you're interviewing on a Tuesday, drive to that place on a Tuesday. However, what I will say is if you are coming from out of the area and, and it's a pretty far drive, you can kind of still make it in the day, you might not have that option. But if you're close enough, that might be a great way of interviewing. However, now it's probably all Zoom interviews, right? So who knows if, if that's even a thing. But you do have to drive to your hospital site. Absolutely. That's a great tip. Yeah. If it's because, like you said, some people could be coming from, you could be coming from two hours away, and that's just like not logical. But if it's within, I don't know, like 20 miles and you have the time, because you've been waiting around all summer to get a career, um, <laughs> then go for it. Take that drive. It's relaxing and it just really prepares you for the day of. Yeah. Um, what else do I have to say? So in my interview, I asked for the educator because I knew the educator was going to be really involved in, um, my orientation and um, like my education to the OR because the OR is very different than floor nursing. So the education process is longer. Um, and my manager was really impressed that I had asked for the presence of the educator. So, and at the end of the interview, she gave me feedback too, which I wasn't really expecting, but she was really impressed by the questions that I had prepared for her. Like she felt that I interviewed her more than she interviewed me. Which is sometimes the most important thing because you already know as, as a new nurse or as a nurse, you already know, like, I would like this job. Right. And the hospital is always like, we need nurses for work here. That's, that's, that's already assumed. What is not assumed is the ins and outs of what you're going to get yourself into. So it is so important for you to do the most questioning and the most interviewing that you can about the entire organization, the unit you're going to work for, uh, the people that you're going to work with, probably the probably way more important than, than the questions that the manager's going to ask you because number one, most programs that my students have asked me to send recs for already ask like the same questions. Like, what is this person like? What skills do they have? where are their weaknesses so they kind of already know you walking into that interview right they've asked like the most important three questions that they're going to ask you and i think that if you come prepared with other questions that go more in depth to what they have to offer to you that's like that's like the most best thing to do right because i think it also so it shows them how invested you are in the organization that you're interested in working for and the specific unit. Um, it shows you, or it shows them that this means a lot to you 
because you know you took all this time to prepare for this interview right and you're not wasting their time and they're not wasting your time either right um it's really funny because that interview ended up being two hours I had but no I idea feel like it either oh it did not feel like it at all and I had no idea it was going to be like that and um when she walked me out to the lobby and she shook my hand and she was just like you should be really proud of yourself and I, I wanted to cry because that was my first interview and I just like if I it felt like it went so well and I called my dad and I was on my way to the car and I was like you know what if I don't get it then they found someone else one hell of a person because so I know it well to prepare for all that stuff like you did I mean goodness yeah. and she called me like 30 minutes later and was like I wanted to personally offer you the job she's like usually I wait and I let HR call you or send you the offer letter but she's like I want you to hear from me so it That's was really so awesome that is yeah. so exciting I t I have had like moments like that as well I remember when I got the job at Hershey when HR called me, I was actually in the Philly area. Um, and I just remember crying because I was like, this is, is this where I want to work? And, you know, moving from Pittsburgh to Hershey, I knew that I was going to be closer to my family. I knew that I was in an area that was like really just chill and beautiful. And I was close enough to family, but far enough away where, you know, I, I could kind of like be my own person. And that was important for me. And also I remember just feeling like that I, that I won in a way, kind of how you were describing how you felt that you did your best in your interview. I felt similarly where I felt like I won the day. If you can win the day, it's like, yes. And then the other part of the interview process that I think you hit really well is that it should feel just like this conversation between people. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be this transactional moment of, I give you a question and you give me an answer. Is there things you can prepare for in your questions? But there are other things that are going to come about within the conversation process that have to do with the questions you prepared, but also will find itself a way of like coming out. You're like, oh, you know, as we're talking about this, I do want to know about this. I just didn't write it down. That's how I felt when I interviewed for Penn for my program that I'm starting in the fall for my DMP. I just felt like this, the whole thing was just this comfortable conversation. And I was really nervous, but I did my due diligence. I researched the people that were interviewing me. I researched and I read their entire CVs. So I knew what their background was. I researched the program very well. Um, I reached out to people that maybe knew the, the people that I was interviewing with, just asking questions. And then when I got to interview day, I mean, I was nervous, right? I was in at work and my boss let me have um, this period of time to interview for, I had relief on my unit and sat there in like this relaxation room on our unit. It's just like this like converted bathroom into like this like room, <laughs> but it's fine. You can just get away from everybody in there. And I remember just being on this phone call because I couldn't connect via their, their Zoom version, which is blue jeans. And I just felt, and, and, they, and they kind of asked questions about who I was and, you know, and, the, and then they kind of just talked about the program and I kind of like answered them and just, I was A, very, very honest and very truthful with who I was. Because if they don't like me, then that's fine. I might not be for that program. So I had a very good understanding that if I didn't get this job, okay, it's not the end of the world. Get this job. Get this, get this um, application to school. Excuse me. 
Number two, you had a very good thing with just being yourself and, very, and being very honest with probably your skill set of what you have. So you stated that you wanted to bring in the educator for that interview process. I don't know anybody else in life that asks for an educator at their interview process in a nursing related job, which I think is probably the most important thing in the world. I think when I interviewed, it was with the educator, I, but it was a very long time ago and it was not the way that it's set up now. So I think a lot of people apply for these graduate nurse residency programs which is a great way of getting into a hospital and having a year-long mentorship program that teaches you all about nursing as a new nurse, but also envelops you into their, into their organizational aspects and gets you comfortable with, with your new job. We didn't have that back in the day, but I, but I do remember answering questions about critical care once I got into Hershey. I just don't know how it happened because it was a long time ago. But I think, I think the things that you just mentioned about, you know, being as comfortable as you as you can be, knowing your attributes and also your downfalls, it's not a problem. It's just something that you know and you, you're going to work on. And also, going to your friends and asking for those interview questions that they've already probably answered or, or found success with, that's also very important too. I think I think a lot of students don't know about those those things. And also, having having that set of interview clothes and having that consistency. So that's the other thing that I, I tell students a lot is consistency about everything is so important. And even in your clothes, I remember, I remember telling people who were interviewing for CRNA school, I've never been to CRNA school, but I know how to interview. And I said to them, conservative is always the best. <laughs> I've seen a lot of nurses try to come into the hospital setting for a job wearing these high heels, short short, short skirts, you know, pearls, all the stuff. And it's like, that's not, that's not okay because it's not impressing anybody with how high your heels are. You're just going in there to have a conversation. So that, so the focus should be you, not what you're wearing, essentially. The other thing of, of, about your experience though, is Philly. And I remember I interviewed I interviewed 60 different places or sent out at least 60 different resumes. I have them all still to places around the Philadelphia area. So I don't know if that's actually changed much because from what your experience is saying that you have to know somebody that was a similar experience back when I interviewed for nursing schools or nursing programs, excuse me, that it was almost like you needed to know somebody in the unit to work for them before you even got the job. And that was kind of like not fair almost. And then you had to do your actual clinical experience there for some jobs. It was a whole bizarre thing. I didn't understand it. Because if we're if, if we need nurses out there and working with patients, then you just, just interview, interview all the people and see who fits best, you know? Anyway, I digress. So then you move into the OR. What was what was your orientation process like? What what is an experience like for, for new nurses that have no clue what OR nursing is? So I was fortunate that when I was doing, I believe it was part of one of my med surge clinicals, we had one or two days in an IC or in an OR. Um, I actually think one of them was during PEDS because when, when you do PEDS in, in state college, we don't have a pediatric hospital. So 
your peds clinicals end up being in like doctor's offices, school nurse roles, and one of them ended up being the OR. So I think I had been to the OR twice during nursing school. And then I actually have a cousin who is an OR nurse. So I had the opportunity to shadow her um, one day in the winter of my senior year. So, you know, like I had an idea of how the OR worked. Um, so that was important to the people interviewing me as well, because the OR is very different from your typical uh, floor nursing role. So they were glad to hear that I had had the experience because I think their biggest fear was to take someone in and then them be like, wait, this isn't what I thought it was. Um, so it was a six month orientation during which I did a course online through the AORN Association of Operating Room Nurses. I think, I think that's right. Uh, and it, and it's this course that everyone goes through at, that's a new nurse to the operating room, regardless of if you're a new graduate or not. Just when you're a new nurse to the operating room, you have to go through this course. Um, and it just, it just welcomes you to the OR with book, book knowledge that you didn't have from nursing school. Um, what else do I want to add to that? Um, so the six month orientation was very much needed. Sounds like a lot, but those six months were very important. And actually during those six months is when COVID happened and the operating room closed and I was put on the floor and then I had to learn the OR again <laughs> two months later. <laughs> oh my goodness. But um, the six months was a lot of shadowing um, and then slowly as I got more comfortable, I was able to um, take more of the, the lead and have the, my preceptor kind of sit back and let me do my circulating role or scrub role. And then um, they would give me feedback and such. What's the difference between a circulating role and a scrub role? So the way that the, the OR, like one operating room functions is there's the nurse anesthetist at the head of the bed who works under the anesthesiologist. And then you have the surgeon um, the surgeon may need an assistant depending on the procedure we're doing. So that would be an RNFA, which is a registered nurse first assist, which is other schooling. And the scrub tech, which can also serve as a RN. And the circulator, the circulator has to be a nurse, has to be an RN. Um, so the circulator is responsible for positioning of the patient because when the patient is completely asleep, they don't have their um, reflexes that if they're on like a pressure point, they're gonna move their, they'll move their arm or if they're gonna get like a pressure sore, they would move their body. So um, 
we have to be conscious of like their elbows, their knees, like depending on the way they're positioned. Um, compression stockings need to be on, like STDs need to be on. Um, a safety belt needs to be across the patient so that when they wake up or if we even move the bed and the weight shifts, obviously we don't want the patient rolling off. Um, we're responsible for consents, checking consents before the procedure, um, making sure that the patient was given informed consent or had given informed consent, um, and just going over their like past medical history, their medications, like making sure they didn't take something that would be contraindicated for the procedure, like maybe like an aspirin in the morning. We don't want that. Um, documentation during the procedure and just like equipment safety and things like that. And then the scrub, um, the scrub role, which can be a scrub tech, which is someone that goes to school specifically for this position and they're trained. I don't think that there's a license that they have to uphold um, or the RN is trained to be a scrub. And when you're the scrub, you have to, you're responsible for maintaining sterility of your table and making sure that everyone in the room is respecting like the sterile field. Um, and you, you are um, responsible for knowing, you pretty much need to know the procedure um, to be able to anticipate the doctor's next move and uh, what they might need, like a, whether it be a clamp or um, something like that. And you need to know all the instruments. So learning the surgical instruments and what they're called and what they're used for, uh, that, was, that was something that was very new because you don't really do that in nursing school. <laughs> no, you don't at all. That sounds like a lot of different things within two distinct roles for the OR. Yeah, and I think that learning how to scrub is very important because you can anticipate when you're circulating, you can anticipate the needs of this of the scrub and the needs of the surgeon because when they're sterile, they can't they can only touch what's sterile. So if they need something that's not on their field, you have to be able to like get that for them and give it to them. And sometimes it needs to be done in a very timely fashion. So um, it's really important to take, take the scrub part seriously, although there's some kind of, like when there's scrub techs, nurses are kind of just like, oh, I don't really need to learn the scrub rule because I'm just gonna be circulating. But you can get thrown in there at any time. <laughs> I, say, I, I can imagine it's like you have a really complex OR patient that has a lot of needs and we're anticipating this patient to be difficult or problematic during the case, you might get thrown into different roles during that OR experience. Mm -hmm. And so even if you even if you have those texts, you know, I, I could imagine that you probably even call people into the OR to, to join the case, right? Or no? Like um, if you have like a certain amount of people in there, like you have like a you know, people scrub nurse, the scrub tech, a circulating nurse, and something goes awry, would you call in more people to come into the OR? Do you, do you have enough people 
at that time in the OR? Well, I'll say that most procedures that happen during, happen during the day are scheduled. So it's a stable patient usually um, and like a fairly healthy patient depending on what they're there for. But I, I think the real learning happens when it's the off shifts and you don't have the surplus of staff there. Um, so, in, so during the, the, we have three shifts. The day shift would be 7, 15 to 3.45. And then we have the 3 to 11 and the 11P to 7A. Um, the 3 to 11 is still staffed, like fairly healthy because um, we have some people that work 10 hour shifts. So they're there until like 5.45. Um, and then there's consistently two nurses and two scrub techs that work three to 11. Um, and then when it comes to 11 p.m., we only have one nurse in the operating room and one scrub tech. Um, and like during the day and during the evening, we have like ancillary techs. So these are people that can um, pick up blood for you. Um, they can bring in equipment for you. Um, there are like extra hands in the operating room other than nurses and scrub techs. And when we're there from 11P to 7A, you don't have, you don't have them. You don't have anyone in pre-op or PACU. Um, you, you pretty much run the show. So when anything comes through those doors, you have to call your call team in because you need, you need the extra hands there. But you're, you're also hitting a good point in that night shift in general doesn't have quite the staff available that if something happens, you need to be super creative uh, within, within your hospital policy of how to get the job done. And it's, it's nothing more than, I think, a budget thing that you just don't have that many people in night shift. Because there's not a lot of things that actually do happen in like a night shift setting. And I see you might be different. A trauma center might be different, you know, but also you probably have an on-call team that might be able to assist you as well. Whereas other hospitals that are smaller, perhaps, might not have an on-call team to help you out if something in the middle of the night happens. Um, I, I remember talking to a couple people on this podcast who worked the night shift and worked on a unit and would have to call the attending at home for orders at two in the morning because there's no residents, there's no nurse practitioners, there's no physician assistants that are in the hospital at any given time. Some, some hospitals also don't have physician residents that are in the hospital 24-7. You know, it's just, it's the attending and the person that is covering the entire unit or the hospital at that time, which is also pretty, pretty crazy. How, how different, aside from the staffing, is night shift nursing? Like, so you did your clinicals, and I believe you did most of your clinicals during the daytime. I do know some people that have done their clinicals, oddly enough, during night shift, but how different is it from a day shift to a night shift perspective? Well, I will say that during my, the fall of my junior year, both of my clinicals were evening, like they were two to eight or something like that, which is still 
kind of day shift if you're looking at 12 hour shifts. But I would say on day shift, um, you just have all these resources available to you. There's, there's just so many people around and especially in the operating room, surgeries are only scheduled, like a scheduled procedure. Uh, the latest it'll be scheduled is two o'clock in the afternoon. So um, like the OR is constantly working, constantly moving. Um, when it gets to three to 11, they might be finishing up some cases that were left over. Um, there might've been like something like a gallbladder or an appendix that came in during the day that had to wait until all the other cases were done. But that's something that needs to go today, but it's not something that is emergent that it's gonna bump other surgeries. Um, and then for overnight, like, like 11 to seven, you're really only doing something if like a level two or a level one trauma comes through the doors of our emergency room and they need to go now. That's the only time we're really gonna be doing a procedure. Yeah, that's, that is really important to know. So how did COVID affect your OR experience? Because in different hospitals all around the country, it closed down elective procedures. And for some hospitals, that's a large amount of profit, also a large amount of activity for the hospital that can translate as well into floor nursing. So how, how did that affect you? So we were told that the OR was officially closing on, on a Wednesday. And they were like, we're doing the cases today. Everything that's on today we're doing, but because of COVID, we have to limit the traffic into the hospital. And at that point, we really didn't even know what COVID was. We knew it was a virus that was going rampant and it was making people really sick. And that's really all we knew. So it was like pretty scary because my initial thought was, I don't have a job. <laughs> um, but because I was so new to nursing and still had like my clinicals like only a few months behind me, um, they did approach me and say, would you be comfortable going to a floor? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> anything, let's go. <laughs> I would like a paycheck, thank you very much. <laughs> Send me up there. So um, they first put me on a med surge unit. Um, we weren't testing everyone coming through the doors at the time because I don't even know that we had the COVID test available. I think at that point we were screening people coming in the emergency room and if they had the symptoms we were aware of then we isolated them to a specific unit that wasn't the unit I was on um and the way that the unit I I was on worked was the rooms were designed for two beds and we were told we could only do one one patient per room so their staffing was becoming like less like it this I think this uh floor was originally like 46 beds but then they could only house 23 people now so your like demand for nurses was less so people were getting canceled on every shift so it even affected wow. the floors yeah um and when I was put up there I wasn't functioning on my own as a nurse because I didn't have floor experience um, and I didn't know their charting system anyway. So, because it was, it's different it just, than the OR. 
right. I never, I will never understand why you have, you have different charting systems within the same hospital on different floors. Because if you really, truly need like nurses, like you just can't take an owner and put them on the floor. You know, yeah, you can't. Yeah. So, um, I was kind of being precepted as if I was a new grad, and it felt a lot like being in clinical again, and just having that patient interaction and passing meds again and doing um, like head to toe assessments. It was, it was like I was back in nursing school and I had a lot of fun with it. Everyone was so welcoming and helpful and supportive. Like we're all on the same team. And um, I got really lucky because, you know, I, I didn't know anyone up there. I didn't know what to expect. I'm just in the middle of a Wednesday walking onto this floor I'm looking for a Jessica. Is she here? She wasn't expecting me. <laughs> and I'm like, here I am. What can I do? <laughs> right. Put me into the loop. That's, I think, how I felt like. So, so I didn't have quite the, the same experience as you did where my unit was shut down because I work in an ICU, so we are always open. However, I remember being on vacation when we were supposed to go away and we canceled our trip. Because this, this thing called COVID, which we didn't have a good understanding of what it was doing, of how bad it, it might get, all this stuff, it just kind of canceled it, right? We didn't know. And so I remember sitting at home that week and I'm like, I need to just, I need to do something. I literally have a week off with nothing to do. And I text my boss and I was like, you know, put me in, put me into the COVID units, you know, because they were looking for volunteers and I felt like maybe I could help out. I don't know. And I remember this entire shift because we had we had not let any visitors in the hospital, or at least like during that week we had like come down at like full visitors to half visitors to no visitors and different times and all that stuff to nothing at all. And I remember walking onto this this place of just it just being like this odd atmosphere of we don't know what's gonna happen. And I remember walking to the COVID unit the first day that I was going to be there and I was just a pair of hands first day. And I remember feeling probably the same way you did. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to treat these patients. You know, this unit had been open for, I think like a week or so, maybe longer of having patients there. And we were seeing this influx at the time and I was welcomed, you know, it, it just seemed like everybody was there for the same reason it was no longer like we had these silos of units of, you know, different specialties of like, oh, well, I'm the HBI, so I can't take care of your neuro patient. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, how do I take care of your patient? Teach me your ways mm -hmm. and show me what you know. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of morale I think we had and still do in these units because what else can you do? You know, if you have somebody that you're not comfortable with, at least you're being honest with yourself and saying, I don't really know that very well. Can you, can you teach me something or, or show me how? And I can imagine it's probably just as difficult, not more difficult as a new nurse with in the middle of your six month training that all of a sudden you're, you're pushed to a whole new unit, a whole new nursing style, whole new charting system, whole new people that you're not even used to, whole new manager that you haven't even interviewed with that at least it was a very positive experience for you. Yeah, I was really fortunate. That unit was so great. I was there for a few weeks and then um, 
And then I ended up actually going, so that was not a COVID unit. And then I ended up going to the COVID unit, uh, which was a step down unit before COVID. And then, you know, because it's a step down, they assumed COVID patients. And uh, it was a full COVID floor. I was overnight when I was there too. So they were understaffed because the ratio was supposed to be two to one and it was always three to one. Um, and I was more so, I was no longer with one person. Like when I was on the first floor, when I was on my first like unit experience, they put me with one preceptor and I kind of did what I did in nursing school. I took their patients and they kind of just shadowed me and they would, you know, push me like, oh, maybe we should prioritize this or they would just make sure I was on the right path and make sure I was charting correctly. And then when I was put on the step down unit, the demands for these patients were so much higher. Um, the ratios were already too high that someone couldn't be chasing me around anymore. I was more so just extra hands for them. I was, I was still giving meds for them. Um, I was going into these rooms and helping them turn patients, uh, helping them clean a patient up, um, anything that they needed um, because when they originally pulled people from other units onto these COVID units, they wanted us to function as uh, kind of gophers for them because once you're in a room, you're gowned up, you have the shield on, the mask on, the gown, the gloves, your, your shoes are covered, everything. You can't come out of that room to go grab this med or to go grab, you didn't know they had a bowel movement. You have to go grab all these new like sheets and everything for them. So they really appreciated us in that role. And then when we were like, you know what, I'll come in with you. Let me get gowned up too. Let's get this job done together. Um, I felt like I was doing a lot more for the nurses. I felt like I was doing a lot more for the patients. And, um, you know, I felt like I was really part of it at that point, like really part of helping these people with this crazy virus. And, and oddly enough, you know, the experiences that you have of being scrub nurse and, and a circulatory nurse sound similar to those of helping with COVID units in terms of, oh, you're this role scrubbed up in sterilization. I'm going to go be your gopher and get you your new equipment or your new tool or whatever you need. Mm -hmm. Same thing with like the COVID units, kind of like you were almost still getting your orientation experience of doing those things just in a different way. Yeah. That's kind of neat. So then you had a lot of probably different experiences then in the OR because I'm sure that you saw enough cases at that point where you're kind of like, well, this is, this is kind of neat. What were some of your, of, of like the coolest cases you, you've seen so far? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I feel like I didn't know anything about surgery before going into the OR. And I might've thought I knew some things, but then once I was exposed, it was just a whole other world. Um, I would say the, the first six months were almost getting, just getting comfortable with the way the OR works mm -hmm. and just like the role you play. And, and we get the patient in the room, we get them on the bed, we get them asleep. Then we're, 
um, putting on like the SCDs, making sure they have the belt on and, and um, like prepping the patient for surgery and just making sure, like just getting into that and the documentation. And then that's when like my eyes opened like even more. Like I, I felt like after that six months, I was noticing so many more things that I wasn't before because I was just so focused on learning how the OR worked. Um, and I would say like, I, like the biggest impression I've had so far was, um, but the first gift of life case I had, because I had heard about it. Like we were like, Oh yeah. Like we had a gift of life this weekend or overnight. And finally a few weeks ago, I was on call and they were like, okay, like we have a gift of life. You have to stay. And, um, what is a gift of life for people that don't, don't know? So St. Mary's does, we will do um, like organ harvests okay. for gift of life. We don't do transplants. Okay. Um, gift of life is a organ donation program that we have, we have, we have a patient in our hospital that they're not going to survive either through cardiac death or through brain death. And they'd meet a very specific criteria to do so, um, which I won't get into, but there's, it, it's, it's a whole protocol. So a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of conspiracy theorists think that you have organ donation on your license that automatically means they're gonna take your organs, that's false. You have to meet so many different criteria. There's about 12, 12 different vials of blood, maybe more, that we send initially if we've gone through this initial criteria of determining that you might be eligible for organ donation. There's consents. There's all of this thing that things that are in play that have happened already legally. And even to, to find if your tissue samples are matches to other tissue samples in this host program of organ donation. And so some programs are different. I think there's a program called CORE out there. I think Pittsburgh has that. And then on the East Coast of Pennsylvania or the Eastern part of Pennsylvania, there's Gift of Life. And so which, which one did you see? Did you have the opportunity to see the cardiac death or the brain death? Brain. And how was that for you? Was that, was that cool, cool to, to be a part of? Was that difficult to be a part of? I tried to, to like, you know, teach my students that you're going to see this this harvest happen and usually a brain death is easier to take in than a cardiac death because a cardiac death when you bring the patient into the OR you have to the patient has to pass within one hour and if with and that one hour is we discontinued the breathing tube we've stopped all of your vasopressor supports which helps keep your blood pressure up keep your heart rate up all that stuff discontinue all that and we allow the natural death to happen once that occurs it only has an hour and if it doesn't happen within an hour there's a whole lot of things that happen chemically in the body that make the organs that were once viable for donation not viable anymore so that's important important to understand as a nursing student or as someone going into nursing school that donation happens happens that way with the cardiac death so that can be very difficult because if the family has already you know, mentally prepare themselves for their loved one, 
they're going to donate these organs, they're going to be super excited to save someone else's life, all this stuff, and it doesn't happen, the patient has to return to their unit and progress to death that way. And it can be very disappointing for both the nurse, the OR nurses, family members, all that stuff, for that to happen to them. So brain death can be a little bit easier because the, the patient is already pronounced at the bedside mm-hmm. or in the ED. I mean, I don't, I don't think these things happen in the ED quite that often. There's a whole lot of other things that go into it, but usually in like an ICU. And then they're transported down to the OR. And then what happens once that patient gets into the OR? Um, so I didn't join the case until uh, the patient was already like completely, you know, their chest and their abdomen, everything was open. Um, but they did not begin the harvest yet because the liver, I think it was fatty. So they had to make sure that the destination it was going to, like the doctor it was going to and the patient were still willing to take it. Um, so once they've started the surgery by cutting open the patient, they have, I believe, two hours to find like a home for this liver that's now been rejected by the first patient. Um, and I think they they took almost the two hours and then and then everything happens really fast. Once we're given the go to start harvesting, um, it happens really quickly. Um, but I can imagine that when the patient first arrives to the OR, um, anesthesia is still there. So they're administering medications at the head of the bed. Um, a timeout, I'm sure, is still, is still done. Um, and everyone from the different, like, respective teams that's going to take the organs are present before the procedure were to begin. Um, but once we're able, once everything has a home and, and we're ready to go, the heart is the first thing to go. And once they take out the heart, they're immediately dumping ice into the cavity because they only have minutes to get these organs on ice. And they only have, I think it's two hours to get them to where they're going. That's crazy. Is that right? Yeah, that I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Cause I've, I've, I've never um, experienced once, once they're done harvesting. So I was in one harvest of like my life and they, so our process, which, which I'm sure is similar, it's all gift of life, right? So the teams come in, they block the OR window. So the, so the harvest team doesn't see the patient until they're already pronounced and they're ready to start. So there's, a, there's one team that brings the patient in, then they say like their, their respects um, for the patient, and then everyone disappears except for the people that are of the gift of life team and the nurse that brought the patient down if they're going to stay for the procedure. But the, but the original team of OR people go away. Then this team that's going to harvest the organs comes in. And that helps reduce any kind of bias, um, any kind of HIPAA things that they have to take care of, and allows for that patient to have, to maintain that privacy. Then my experience was that they, that they open the patient in the belly, 
and they took a look at the liver. They didn't have to wait long for the liver, but I know that they that they rejected the liver, which came to a surprise with me when I was first learning about gift of life. That even if you do ha- have all of these tissue matching, and we are 100% going to take this organ, you can still get to the point of the OR, and the surgeon can look at it and say, "We're not going to take this. This is not going to be good for my patient." Which you know yeah. that can be pretty pretty crazy in itself, because you think you've met all of these this criteria. If this patient was once in an ICU room, you worked your butt off to get to this patient to where they need to be. And now it's like, no, all, all that work was like, no, nah, you know what? This is not going to work out. This is, this is no, this is not going to happen. Um, and then I, I don't know if they, if they dumped ice in, into the cavity or not, because this was, this was a, a few years ago. But the surgeon seemed at this point to work almost in like this orchestrated ballet of cut and harvest and some people can 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 view this as well this is really barbaric this is horrible it's not because the skill of that surgeon is there to rescue that organ put it into a cooler get it to where they need to go as soon as they as they can because that's the best time that they're going to have available to get that organ into the patient that needs it and so in my mind, it makes it a lot easier to accept that, that that surgeon is, is put on this earth for that purpose of this specific skill set of harvesting a lung, or this other surgeon, is, his specific skill, skill set is harvesting a heart. And it's not just one surgeon, it's six surgeons in there doing their thing, getting in and out as fast as they can. That, that was my experience of it. And that for me made it a lot easier to accept that what we're doing is definitely definitely okay for that next patient and not something that's like we're just taking it for the sake of taking these things um well i'm assuming that was your experience a cardiac death yeah i, I did okay it, because this this particular um or case i just referenced was not this was a brain death but i did have one that we just didn't it, the patient just did not progress to death because in cardiac death patients, they pronounce in the OR, and then the OR team, the, the separate team that I mentioned before, comes in after they're pronouncing the OR. So, so you can pronounce these patients either at the bedside or in the OR. Bedside is brain death, OR is cardiac death. And this was a young person that was going to donate after cardiac death. And the family was was excited, and then we had to tell them that it just he just didn't die in time or she just didn't die in time and had to return them to their room. So that was kind of difficult to really accept because you want, you want these, like everyone to be happy with their decision. You want them to be respected in such a way that they have decided to do the ultimate gift of their life, donate their organs to someone else. That's not to say that this person wasn't able to donate things like corneas, skin, things like that. That can definitely still be donated after these things happen. But organs, because you have such electrolyte imbalances, you have such um, perfusion problems after a certain period of time, blood just gets shifted, blood changes within these things. That's why it's so important that after cardiac death happens, these things have to move quickly. Just like, just like you, were, you were talking about how after your, car, after your heart was, was harvested, they were dumping ice to prevent that from, from going bad. Kind of, kind of similar in, in the aspect of we have to save the rest of this body to help prevent these things from happening. So, yeah, that was, 
that was that was not the, the best thing in the world to see was that cardiac death um organ harvest but it helped me understand the importance of of, of gift of life and donation programs as well um i would like to say that it's really difficult for the family to accept that their loved one has passed away or is you know moments away from it and then for them to make this decision to donate their organs and this decision almost brings them hope that something good is coming from this um they will or they will live on in other people um they're able to like like their family member is able to save someone else's life and then for it to come back and be that this you know they didn't pass away in time um we no longer can 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 harvest these organs that is just such a roller coaster for for these people all in a day really this is that that's all in one day finding out you know the severity of their of their family members condition or this could happen very quickly you know maybe like a motorcycle accident or something where it happens you know all in that same day they find out they're dying they find out that they can donate organs they do make the decision and then it gets rejected like that's really just such an emotional roller coaster for the healthcare team but also especially for the family um because it gave them like a hope that like something good was going to happen. Um, I mean, fortunately, I didn't experience that, but I would say that it was a very like emotional, like turmoil day for me because I'm so used to us, like we're saving people, we're doing everything we can to, to help them like live. And now we're actually going to take these organs out of this person and um i was like really upset about that and then when we were waiting for this for the liver i got to talking to the team that was harvesting the heart and they were like yeah we're gonna have a chopper pick us up we're going to new york this this 22 year old girl is going to get this heart tonight and like that really like made my whole attitude change about it that like something good really was coming out of this, you know? Yeah. Did that, did that whole aspect change you in any way? And I mean that like, like did that whole aspect, like, so, so some people experience these things in their life as nurses and like, I'll never forget my, my first death as a nurse extern and that changed me. Right. So did this experience like shift your perspective or change you mentally as a nurse? Um, I would say that it it made me respect or it made me realize how much I respect the life of others. It didn't it didn't make me respect life more. I I have always respected life the same, but I think it it made me really think about who this person was in her life and our ICU nurse actually stayed the patients I see in our state in the OR. So we got the background of what happened to get us, you know, to get her in the hospital and, and about her, her family and how she has children. And it just really shaped 
for us in the OR, which we normally don't get this experience, but it really shaped for us, you know, the woman that this was. And um, I think it made it more difficult because it's not just, obviously it's not just of organs on a table. It's, it's, right. it's a human life that, that was just really unfortunately lost. And, and it, it's really crazy to think that that day was the worst day of her family's life. And then it was the best day of all these people getting these organs. It was the, the, the first day of the rest of their life. And it was the best day of their life and their family's lives. And, and it's just, it just is, it's crazy how much, how different a situation can mean to, to different people. Yeah. Yeah. In um, one, in one single situation too. Yeah. Or like one in, in one 24 hour period, I should say, not situation, because they have just different situations. But in one 24 hour period, right? So many people are going through different things. It all reunited by one single piece of organ, essentially. That's crazy to think about. I think it made me more interested in the gift of life and organ donation and more welcome to organ donation. Mm-hmm. than I was before um but yeah like I think it just really made me consider more the different um angles of every like situation you know like yeah. with a patient yeah I'll, I'll never forget when I uh first not first started working on my unit but first had more knowledge than I did of what we do in ICU when we have somebody that qualifies for a gift of life or for a donation program. And in ICU, once they're, once they're deemed this service, they get changed over. And then the patient on our particular unit is made a one-to-one, so one patient, one nurse, you're doing all this work. You're, you're working to make sure that their lung tissue stay viable. And that involves recruitment, that involves Q4 hour ABG checks. That involves mini bowels of checking like the fluid in their lungs. It involves pressors to keep their blood pressure up. It involves IV um, thyroid medications to help the thyroid out. It involves urine outputs, making sure they're okay and making sure that you're doing it enough to prevent BI and SADH if you have to. A whole ton of things that, that go into saving every single piece of this person's body once that person is deemed a, an, an organ candidate. And that made me realize how challenging donation is and, it, and how challenging it is to, uh, to get that organ to be obtainable for that next patient. And even so much work to get where they need to be and it can still be not enough at the end of the day. So it's a lot of, I, I think it's a lot of mental preparation Nothing's gonna is gonna prepare you for it until you go through it, but you have to have the ability to kind of process it and then set it aside, put it into this nice little box, have a little bow on top of it, and then put it on like your wall or something so that you can kind of remember it in, in such a way but not get upset about it, you know, because you still have to go to work the next day. The family can can take their time processing it, but the nurse has to go to work during the next shift, you know, whenever that is. So how do you unbox things like that within your day? 
Um, I would say that, like, I try to talk about it. Like, I try to, um, like, talk about how I, what I saw, how I perceived it, and, like, where I am emotionally, um, and how, like, it made me feel, um, like, just try to navigate what was going, what was going on in my head, and, um, because, like, you really can't hold this stuff in, you know? Yeah, you can't at all. So, and I think, like, keeping, like, a journal is really important. Um, like, just letting, kind of letting it go because you're acknowledging what you went through um, and you're kind of giving yourself a better understanding of how you feel by, by thinking it out and writing it out. And, you know, you can always look back at it and, you know, remember like how it made you feel and just remember the lessons that it made you learn. And I think that's important with a lot of like first experiences as a nurse too. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think journaling is a great way. Um, some people like to go for runs. Some people like to go on vacations, I guess. But I think in the moment stuff like journaling is super important. And not holding yourself guilty of what you're feeling. So being able to say, you know what, I'm feeling this way and, and it's okay to feel this way. Because we don't talk enough about how we feel. Like I've I think it was last, the last semester I taught, no, the fall semester that I taught was the first time that I had to, to debrief my students in a way that they went through kind of like this crazy experience during their clinical experience. And it, in terms of this patient kind of went south really quickly and the student was in the room and you just saw this look on their face like, well, my gosh, what's going on, you know? And once we debriefed from that moment, my my important question was, are you okay? What did you experience there? Like, how, how did that feel? And it's okay to talk about this in this group, you know, and having this non-biased, non, non-judgmental, like, talk about it. Because it doesn't matter if someone can handle a situation better than another person. The fact is that you have to be supported in some way. And so we should be able to talk about these things in terms of changes in terms of death in terms of like scary things that happen within our profession and I think that that was like a good turning point for them and myself as well for clinical experiences because we don't do enough discussion of what things felt like not just like oh hey how was your day <laughs> what were the meds you gave you know what were your patients like what are your classroom things like like actually how did you feel about the about what you did during that day and how did that shape what you thought about your patient's care? Oh, yeah. You know? And I feel like that's something that you really don't encounter in clinical and in nursing school because, I mean, you're only, you're only in this patient's, or this patient is only in your care for a very small fraction of your time. And I just feel like when you're in your professional nursing role, um, I think you take more responsibility for your patient and you're more invested in their care and, and who they are and their family and 
because you're the one who's communicating with their family. And I, I just think that it's something that you really wouldn't experience right. so much at a clinical. Right. And it's not, it's not like it's a captain either. Right. It's not like, you know, you can always go back to somebody that's kind of like your, your teacher, right? You, when you are a nurse in that situation, in that unit, you are the nurse. You're the person that's reviewing orders. You're the person that's giving the meds. You're the person that's ultimately trying to find out all about this patient to provide the next 12 hours of care to. You, you don't have a clinical instructor anymore. You don't have that support system. I'm not saying you don't have class, um, classmates, coworkers to go to, to ask questions to. However, it's just a little bit different. It's like, it's finally like your license is now in the realm of practice so that's really important that you don't make mistakes now not that it wasn't before but we can kind of keep an eye on you as clinical instructors or someone like that that if you do make a mistake it's a calculated mistake whereas if you're out in the real world and real practice nursing it might not be a calculated mistake it might be a really big mistake that you just didn't know that you were doing because you, you know don't have the experience yet but also it can be really really detrimental if you if you're not careful with how you unpack those things and how you kind of experience those things and your learning curve goes whew, straight up once you become a nurse so oh, yeah <laughs> oh yeah so having that educator there to kind of help you and having a good preceptor i think those are those are really important really important things so yeah yeah and i think that i mean in nursing school i feel like we did always debrief but like you said it was we debriefed about what meds we gave and and what you know what uh like cases we saw like like not really so much about like the person and the care but we learned something new about uh you're breaking up a little bit so go ahead so repeat what what you were just saying, I'm sorry. I'm good, you good? We had a tiny, tiny little glitch in the system. So Alexis, if you could repeat your, your story, what you were just saying, it's, it is hurricaning outside for the listeners that are listening right now. We're in Pennsylvania and it's, it's insane. So go ahead, Alexis, and just repeat your, your story that you were just sharing. Um, I think I was just saying that, um, like, the practice of debriefing at clinical, although it's, at clinical, it's typically minuscule things, like about the medications that we gave or the new, um, like, disorders we learned about. Mm -hmm. I think that getting into the practice is really important um, for when you become a nurse and like it gets heavier and you're comfortable debriefing with maybe your friends or your coworkers about, about what happened or like your loved one. Um, just, just letting it all go. Cause you can't, you can't keep that stuff back. So I think that we definitely, practice debriefing in nursing school and I think it like welcomes you more in your professional practice um to be comfortable doing that yeah I think so too and I I think it has to be somewhat outside of 
finding so we 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 kind of do debriefing on a unit as nurses there's sometimes when we get our clergy involved but it's not like it's not like we we do a deep dive right it's kind of like we felt this way and then we kind of move on but we didn't really like help solve the problem in, in my opinion so it's it's really important to kind of unpack all those things and i try to tell my, my co-workers to not hold yourself in contempt about your thoughts because they're your thoughts right like everyone thinks these things that are either horrible or happy or whatever they are but if you don't unpack those in a specific way you don't and, and you learn how to not hold yourself like and judge yourself about them you'll be a whole lot better mm -hmm. at nursing i think and caring for people because like i've made this argument before that you have to number one care about yourself as the number one priority then your second priority is caring about your your other co-workers right because if you don't care about those few things you can't care for your patients and if you don't if you can't care for the, those three things then you won't be a nurse for longer than five years you know it just can't happen because there's so much to to get to know in the realm of nursing mentally for yourself for your others how to handle different situations how to handle death I always ask my, my, my clinical people, I'm like, do you feel comfortable about death? And they're like, yeah, of course I feel comfortable about death. I'm like, but do you really feel comfortable about somebody dying and going through those motions and going through horrible situations that you probably have not seen before, you know? And even going to see like the life stuff. Like students can, can go do that. And I always am very frank with people that, you know, are you comfortable with this if this happens? Usually they're, they're far enough removed away from the situation that they're they're pretty comfortable with it but sometimes you know it, it, it can be a pretty hard thing to, to let go of for sure yeah well, go ahead i well, i'll say and i feel like like you were touching on you need to care about yourself and your coworkers. if you didn't go into nursing because you wanted to care for people then i don't think you're going to last very long anyway mm. it's so important to know and even just not be selfish about who you are as a nurse right so you can't just not care for people like you're saying if you go into it for a money aspect it's not going to lead you to riches it's probably not going to be of benefit to you by choosing that route and most of the time if you're choosing a job for the money aspect most of the time there's there's always something at the other side of that paycheck that is either making you work really long hours a really horrible situation or something else and i and i say that for for experiences of people that have told me about you know they, they took this travel assignment they were offered a ton of money to do so but it was the worst hospital they've ever worked for you know they thought it was going to be something mm -hmm. great but it turned out to be the worst thing you know nurses were not nice to them um, the hospital physicians were just not attentive to patients, like so many things that happen out there. So that's that's a really good point to make that if you're if you're not in it for the caring aspect of nursing, then you're really not in it at all. And you won't find a fruitful journey of your career because the only thing that matters is you and that patient at the end of the day, no matter what. And probably it's the best job ever, right? Anyway. I don't want to keep you for much longer. You keep, you keep going in and out of the situation with the storm. But is there anything in closing that you want to say for the podcast people? Yes, if it comes through, um, 
I want to say that oh, it says my connection's unstable, Nicole. I don't know. You're good. Keep going. I can hear you. Okay. Uh, be open to any position. This hospital was a hospital I didn't even hear about. I heard about it from a neighbor. I applied on a whim, and I ended up taking this job. Um, you know, be open to new opportunities. Um, do things that make you uncomfortable and get comfortable with them. <laughs> um, you need to really love what you do. So if you're not having fun and you're not feeling valued at your place of work, go get a new job. There's plenty of nursing jobs out there. I already have friends on their second job. We graduated a year ago. You'll make it. If you made it through nursing school, then you will make it through your first nursing job. Right on. All right, well, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hope to see you soon on another episode. Thanks for having me. We had, we had a good time. We did a great time. We weathered the storm. We weathered the storm. So appropriate. <laughs>